Lord, we love you, and we thank you for um, this wonderful day. We thank you for the sun and uh, just the lights that um, you provide, Lord. We thank you um, that summer is coming. Uh, we pray for this time as we uh, talk about the church in the Reformation era, uh, that we will honor and glorify you, Lord, as a result of this study, and that we will be edified. Um, we love you. And we praise you for who you are. Pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So tonight we are on the church in the Reformation era. I was telling Elizabeth on the way here that I think talking about the church is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Um, it's just so many good things to talk about about when you're talking about the church. And then also with the Reformation era, it just makes it even so much better. So hopefully tonight will be a good night on that. Um, just looking forward uh, for the next couple times we meet. Obviously next week we will not be meeting because it's Holy Week. Uh, but we will be back in two weeks' time. Um, two weeks' time, I think we're getting into the modern era at that point. Uh, so, um, don't come next week, but for now, we're focusing in, like we said, on the church and the Reformation era, and I want to start this study tonight, it's kind of, um, recapping, not fully recapping, but just at least acknowledging the topics that we talked about the last two times, and you can see the intro question on this note sheet, I want us to see how they kind of lead into one another. So the question is, how does the study of Scripture, so that's what we talked about two uh, teachings ago, um, and then salvation, which is what Jason taught on, and then the church today, how do they relate to each other? And more specifically, I know that's a broad question, I want to really focus in and how, why do you think we went in that order um, for this study. Why do you think we started with the Reformation era specifically, talking about Scripture, then salvation, and now the church? How does one lead into the other? What do you guys think? Scripture leads us to salvation, and salvation, as people are saved, you, you develop a church. All right, so it's as simple as that, right? Um, when we were looking at the Reformation era it, with these... Um, categories or with these topics. Scripture, right? We talked about Martin Luther, um, Sola Scriptura. Uh, I believe Erasmus was mentioned in last week or maybe two weeks ago where Martin Luther was looking at back at the Greek translation of the New Testament. For the longest time, they just had the Latin Vulgate, and so now they're looking back at the original languages. And they started with Scripture, recognizing, they started, Martin Luther started to recognize, well, where does my authority come from? It comes from, it comes from Scripture, and not necessarily in addition to the Pope, right? So then we talked about Scripture, and then next week, as Lonnie mentions, that kind of leads into salvation. How are we saved? Martin Luther started to recognize, we have some things wrong here as we started to look, as he started to look back to Scripture, right? So we have sola scriptura, then we have sola fide. By faith alone we're saved. 
and then we need to now start recognizing, well, who is the church? Um, Martin Luther and many other reformers saw that the Roman Catholic Church uh, wasn't necessarily a true church, is what they would um, say. And so the question becomes, well, what is the church? Who is a part of the church? How do we recognize what the church is? And so I hope you could see how one leads right into the other and how they thought through these things. Uh, and then the question is, who has authority of the church? It's no longer the Pope, right? Well, it is for the Roman Catholics, but the Reformers weren't recognizing that at this time now. So what is the church? This is a important discussion that they were re-asking themselves at this point then. So you can see, next section on your note sheet, the question is, what is the true church? And in addition to that, what are its markers? How would you mark out? What are some things you would look at and say, that's a sign of a true church? So I want to hear from you guys first before we get into what some of these other individuals said in the Reformation era. But when you think of a church, uh, more specifically a local church, right, a visible church, we're not just talking about the universal church here, uh, what marks it out as a church, as opposed to just another gathering of people? What would you guys say? Yes? Covenanted members. Covenanted members. Right? That's a good one. What else? You could just start naming them out. Just list as many as you can. So membership, covenanting together. Um, By a group of Christian believers. Christian believers, right? So you have to be Christian. Qualified leaders. Qualified leaders. Uh, yep, that's good. Right, recognized elders, deacons. So what well, else? What the Bible tells us. What was that? Living by what God tells us to do. Living by what God tells us to do, right? Having scripture as our authority, right? So this is why we emphasize the preaching of God's word. So that's one of the main markers, right? We need to be able to be preaching God's word. What else? Are there more note sheets for Corey back there? There are some core ones that we haven't mentioned yet. We've mentioned core ones for sure, but what are some others? When you say every local church needs to have these things in order to be a church. Or do these things. Not necessarily have these things, but maybe do these things. Needs to have uh, people that train others in how to <coughs> be the church or be believers. Okay. So... I would put that maybe in a subcategory under, um, you mentioned leaders, but then also teaching of God's word, right? Because we uh, disciple others, ultimately from scripture. Scripture is our authority. I think we cover like worshiping the Lord, like a group that are doing that together. Okay, worshiping. Um, yes, but that work could also mean many things. If we 
we have to kind of define really what we mean when we come together as worshiping. Now, we put the preaching of God's word, right, under worshiping. But there's other things that we do in a worship service um, to express our heartfelt affections towards God in worship. Ordinances. Ordinances, yes. So those are the other two items that I was looking towards. So ordinances, sacraments, whatever we want to call them, right? And specifically, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those belong to the church, and those are things that churches do. Um, So you can see, I want to look first at Martin Luther. We're going to look a lot at Martin Luther tonight. These big paragraphs on your note sheet are just big quotes from Martin Luther. So we'll hopefully get through these. Um, But you can see on one of the uh, pieces he wrote... Uh, called on the papacy in 1520, he has three markers identified in that of what a church looks like or how you can identify a church. And the three things he has listed here are three things that you have already mentioned. Uh, The preaching of God's word is number one. And second, baptism. Third, Lord's Supper. Uh, those are the f- three markers he identifies here in 1520 on the papacy. Um, so obviously, when he writes something like this, just marking out three different things here, uh, the Roman Catholic Church responds, retaliates, uh, and calls Martin Luther a heretic, and he is... Uh, threatened to be excommunicated from the church if he doesn't recant. And they give him an official document. And what does Martin Luther do with that? He just burns it and doesn't care about it. And then he uh, writes even more against them. So that's just the type of personality Martin Luther had. Um, It's actually very comical when you read a lot of his writings, uh, just with his personality coming out from the pages um so but anyways uh you could see a little bit later um uh, 1593 he writes another piece on the councils and the church and here i want us to read seven different markers he identifies now for the church so he thinks through this a little bit more um and he expounds a little bit more on what he would call uh, as markers of the church. Again, uh, a lot of this is being redefined during this time because the Protestants, specifically the Reformers, uh, were trying to understand their identity in relation to the Roman Catholic Church uh, and what marked out a true church. So um, I'm going to have us read these seven things, and I just want us to simply identify what each of these seven things are, uh, and then we'll ask some questions on this, and then we'll move on to the next person. Sound good? So who wants to read number one for us? Number one. The first marker here. All right, Lonnie? This Christian holy people is to be known by this, that it has God's word. Though in quite unequal measure, as St. Paul says, Some have it altogether pure, others not entirely pure. Those who have it pure are called 
those who build on the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, who have it impure are they who build with hay, straw, wood on the foundation, yet will be saved through fire. Of these, more, of these, more than enough has been said above. This is the main point. It is the high chief holy possession from which the Christian people take the name holy, for God's word is holy, and sanctifies everything it touches. Nay, it is the very holiness of God. All right. So what's the first marker here? Luther identifies God's word, right? So this again, going to... Uh, what he would then, as he further explains this first marker, he says it's the, the preaching of God's word, the proclamation of God's word here. All right, so, all right, that's a good place to start, right? We, as Protestants, recognize the church is founded on the word of God. Um, second marker, or there, is there any comments on the first one? Uh, it is interesting where he goes a little bit into saying that some have the pure word of God, some are uh, don't have the full purity of God's word. And maybe that's just talking about um, the recognizing the right books of Scripture. Um, but it is an interesting discussion he brings in there. Any questions on the first one? Or should we jump to the second marker of Luther? All right. Second marker. Who wants to read the second marker? All right, thanks, Nancy. God's people, Christian holy people, is known by the holy sacrament of baptism when it is rightly taught and believed and used according to God's ordinance. Baptism is a public sign and precious holy possession where God's people is made holy, where it's a holy bath of regeneration through the Holy Ghost, in which we bathe and are washed by the Holy Spirit Ghost from sin and death. As in the innocent, old blood of the Lamb of God. Where you see this mark, know that you the ho- know that the holy Christian people must be there, mm-hmm. even though the Pope does not baptize you, or even if you know nothing about his holiness and power. <laughs> All right. So here is another mark of the church, and this mark is what baptism, right? Uh, with the sacraments or the ordinances, uh, we have baptism here. First one mentioned. Um, what does baptism point to? We say it's a symbol, it's a representation um, of a spiritual reality that has happened. What is the spiritual reality that baptism points to? It's mentioned in this paragraph. Regeneration. Regeneration, exactly. Regeneration. Regeneration is where the Holy Spirit works in you gives you a new heart, regenerates you, makes you alive. Um, and so you can ultimately uh, accept Christ as a result. So, baptism. Any questions on this paragraph specifically? All right. We even consider it to count. <laughs> um, but many people do consider it to count, so that's just the, that's a big discussion that you could have on whether you should immerse yourself in water or if sprinkling is sufficient. Uh, some of the individuals who would say sprinkling is sufficient would say that baptism ultimately points to regeneration, as we also identify, uh, but that is really just supposed to represent washing away of our sins, and so we could just 
put water on some parts of our body and just wash away our sins. We don't necessarily need to be immersed. Um, we would say, well, it's also a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection, and so we should be fully immersed. Um, so, yeah. What was that? They baptized you in water in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So if they so. did it that way then, if the disciples and Jesus did it that way, then that's, to me, the only right way to do it. Yep, I agree. I agree. So, but that's good. Those are good questions for sure, Nancy. Um, let's go to the third one. Who wants to read the third one for us? What is the third marker of the church, according to Martin Luther, in the year 1539? I almost said 37. All right, thank you. God's people, or a Christian holy church, is known by the holy sacrament of the altar, when it is rightly administered according to Christ's institution, and is believed and received. That, too, is a public mark and precious holy possession, bequeathed by Christ, whereby his people is made holy. By means of this sacrament, it exercises itself in faith and openly confesses that it is a Christian people, as it does also by means of the word of God and baptism. And it goes on and on and on. Um, each of these seven points, markers, I just took out the very first part of it. He um, elaborates a lot more on each one of these. Um, but what is this, what is this one? Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um, sacrament of the altar, um, Lord's Supper. We'll talk more about that um, a little bit later tonight, of the Lord's Supper, what is also called the Eucharist, communion, and the different positions and what people believed, the different positions on that. So, uh, number four, who wants to read four? All right, thank you, John. The people of God, or holy Christians, are known by the keys which they publicly use. Christ decrees in Matthew 18.15 that if a Christian sins, he shall be rebuked. And if he does not amend his ways, he shall be bound and cast out. But if he amends, he shall be set free. This is the power of the keys. All right. So this is language that we might not be used to when we talk about having the keys. And that's really referring to, um, I think, Point four explains this as well without me giving it away. What is this referring to? What would we call this? Church discipline, right? Um, so uh, allowing, having people join our church or not join our church, being a part of our church based on um, if they are living in unrepentant sin, right? So this we have to be careful with this, with church discipline always, Church discipline is for those who claim to be believers who go on living directly against what we know as God's will and desire for their lives based on Scripture. Uh, And he quotes, he looks at Matthew 18, and that's a passage we would normally go to for church discipline. Uh, This is not referring to someone who uh, is a Christian and is struggling with a certain sin, desires to... Um, get rid of the sin, but um, has a regular struggle with it, right? We recognize that we all struggle with sin. We're all sinners. But yes, this is referring to someone who has no regard for um, the depravity of their sin here. So discipline, he, he puts in as a marker of 
the church. Any comments on this one? Yes. Um, do you know what was the power of the keys? That sounds very interesting. Yeah, well, uh, the Catholic Church would give the power of the keys to the Pope, and that's really um, language that's used to kind of really um, allow who is to be recognized. How would you explain it, Jason, as part of the church? Remember that the Catholic Church, by and large, particularly in this age, views those inside it yeah. as believers, those outside it as non-believers, and therefore as holding the keys, the concept of a gatekeeper. Yeah. Okay. Of for salvation, hold salvation. Yes. So for them to, it is an even stronger position than we would use often with um, church discipline today. So I yeah. would say today, should a church need to practice discipline, do so well, that they should do so with language that essentially says to that person at the end, based upon what we see in you, we do not believe that you are a believer in good standing with God. Whereas the Catholic Church, with the concept of holding the keys, would be more readily willing to say, you are not of the kingdom because we say you are not. Yes, that's good. But they, it's drawn from the Gospel of Matthew uh, sixteen nineteen. Mm -hmm. Jesus says to Peter, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so granting, allowing who, or pointing out who is saved and who isn't. Um, and, and appropriate behavior and inappropriate behavior as that relates as well. So yeah. uh, what the Catholic Church says is okay is okay because they have the keys. What they say is not okay is not okay because they have the keys. And there is not always a lot of uh, uncertainty in that or uh, humble couching of, we don't think that this is right. Or based upon what we understand of Scripture, we don't think this is right. There is the, this is not right because we say it is not right. And there's some interplay with what God is teaching here to the church of the value of the church in affirming right and wrong, affirming believers and unbelievers. Um, so the keys are not necessarily a bad thing. God has given them, um, but the exercising of that yes. needs to be done. Probably a, I'm more comfortable with it being done cautiously and carefully than thus saith the Lord, we have absolutely gotten this right. Or not even thus saith the Lord. Thus we say, therefore, thus the Lord says. Yeah. And another piece to this as well is recognizing who holds the keys in the sense, as we had already mentioned, the Roman Catholic Church would say ultimately the top guy. Um, and it's um, really then put down with uh, to the other clergy. But for us, as the Reformation continues, it was the emphasis was put more on the congregation. Um, and then we come to our position as Baptists and many other Protestants would be on the, would hold to this position of the priesthood of believers. And that it's all of our responsibility to hold each other accountable. Um, so that's a good question.
Number five. Any other questions on four? Okay, five. Who wants to read five? The fifth marker of a church. All right, thank you. Um, the church is known outwardly by the fact that it consecrates of calls ministers or has officers which they occupy. For we must have bishops, pastors, or preachers to give and administer and use publicly and privately the four things or precious possessions that have been mentioned for the sake of and in the name of the church, or rather because of their institution by Christ, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11. All right, and he goes on and he gives, um, identifies the different leaders of the church in Ephesians 4. Uh, so what is this one? ministers. So leaders, the offices of the church, recognizing the offices of the church. If you remember, we've talked about this a, a couple times, uh, what are the two offices of the church? Elders and deacons. Um, we would recognize uh, that the term used for bishop, um, overseer, pastor, are synonymous really to refer to the same um, office as elder and then we have deacon as well right so we have those who teach god's word and then we have those who serve the church the the deacons and so a marker of the church is to have these leaders someone who's able to teach god's word right a recognized elder and people who serve the church you can have multiple elders you could have many deacons Uh, but this is the fifth marker he identifies any questions on that one all right, we're almost done. Only two more. And then we'll get into other things. All right, six. Who wants to read six? I got it. All right, thanks. The Holy Christian people is known by prayer and public thanksgiving and, pr- and praise to God. Where you see and hear that the Lord's prayer is prayed and the use of it is taught for psalms or spiritual songs are sung in accordance with the word of God and the right faith. When the Creed and Ten Commandments are the cate- and the Catechism are openly used, there to be sure that a holy Christian people is. Right. For prayer, too, is uh, one of the precious holy possessions whereby everything is made holy. All right. So here we see prayer, specifically. Um, and prayer, really, is joined together with the Holy Spirit. So working in uh, with the Holy Spirit, having this communal relationship with God, singing songs, giving thanks, right? Using the Spirit, by the Spirit we do things, and by the Spirit we pray to God. Um, number seven, the last one. This is will sound the, like the strangest one, but hopefully the last line here will help clear it up a little bit for us. But who wants to read this last one? All right, thank you, Isaac. The Holy Christian Church is outwardly known by the holy possession of the Holy Cross. It must endure all hardship and persecution, all kinds of temptation and evil from devil, world, and flesh. It must be inwardly said, timid, terrified, outwardly poor, despised, sick, weak, thus comes like its head to Christ. The reason must only be this, that it holds fast to Christ and God's world and thus suffers for Christ's sake, according to Matthew 5.10. Blessed are they that endure persecution for my sake. 
Thank you. Inwardly sad, Tim and terrified. Sorry, that's my typo there, Isaac. Um, so what is this one saying? This one sounds bizarre a bit to us. Persecution. What was that? Hardship and persecution. Yes. Enduring hardship and persecution, right? This is a marker of the church. And this would be a lot more evident and on your mind as a Christian during this time, right? Especially if you are opposing the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, You are going to be persecuted. Uh, Will you endure, right? And we talked about the Anabaptists who were being persecuted on both sides. You had the Roman Catholic Church here, and then you also had the magisterial reformers, which included Martin Luther oppressing the what we call the radical reformers, such as the Anabaptists, which were the individuals who baptized again, meaning they baptized believers like what we do today. Um, and if you remember two weeks ago, I talked about a story of a guy named Felix Manns, and many others. This is just one tiny story amongst many uh, who was drowned in Zurich, Switzerland, um, over the oversight of Aldrich Zwingli because he would not recant the belief of believer's baptism. And that was a normal thing that was happening during this time. All right, so these are the seven markers that he identifies here. Uh, the question for you guys, you can see on your note sheet, would you agree with these markers of the true church? Why or why not? So we've identified them. Now let's talk about them. I see head shaking. Yes. Uh, should we, would you say we should add more to this? Um, should we take away some of these? Because what we're saying here is if these, are a mar- if these are markers of the true church, then every church needs to have these things. Yes? I guess I'm not sure about adding, but some of these I see being drawn from having a correct understanding of the gospel and scripture. Okay. So this last one, particularly understanding persecution and hardship, and that's like practically sound doctrine. Like if you have a correct understanding of the gospel and scripture, this is a reasonable conclusion. Mm. And... Um, you know, some of the ones we're talking about prayer and Ten Commandments and these things. I mean, that's kind of an extension of understanding Scripture and doctrine. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know if doctrine needs to be a separate category. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think that's good. Um, so we need to at least recognize sound doctrine someplace in here, but that could be implications of some of these markers of what you're saying. Um, and sound doctrine is from the preaching of God's word, and so we would get it from there. Uh, so again, what we're saying here is any group of believers that have these seven markers should be considered a true church. Um, yeah. As I'm looking through it, I don't know that I disagree with any of them, but they're very vertical in structure. Mm. Um, yeah. That's a good uh, thing to notice. They're oriented towards God with number four, or sorry, five being, four and five a little bit, being oriented vertical in leadership orientation. There's not a lot of horizontal Hmm. unity amongst the brotherhood, pursuit of mission, discipleship, that type of thing. It seems very um, vertical. 
more so than we probably would understand it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. And I mean, if you if you think through this and you uh, think about again the time that this was happening, uh, theology takes a while. <coughs> excuse me, um, for it to. Uh, be articulated well from Scripture and to be uh, properly recognized uh, when you're trying to identify what is a church. And so they're really starting from scratch here. And so they're just finding the fundamentals, right? What are the fundamental things you need for a church? And then as the Reformation continues, um, centuries go on, and then more discussion is had then on things like missions, right? Um, what does it look like to have a healthy congregation doing with membership? Yep. So on the same vein of historical comparison, if these were more starting to distinguish, they all would be the same as being Catholic, so this is what's important. You know, and then our more modern take on it. Like, where would, um, like, for right now, I would say that, you know, a true church needs to have, like, a proper... Um, like you have to have like the, the right gospel message, and we hear about the false gospel message, and, yeah. you know, health and wealth, prosperity gospel. How do you Articulate say that, that you need to have that distinction? And I don't think false gospel would have been as big a deal right then, because all they're trying to do is distinguish from Catholic, or is that not right? Well, I mean, they would call the Catholic the false gospel, right? So they would distinguish themselves in, in that regard, and their sound doctrine they would recognize is that we need to hold on to faith alone is for uh, for salvation. Christ alone, right? Scripture alone, all the alone, so five solas. Um, I think it's hard if you're trying to identify, put that as a marker for us today, just because, and like, and not explaining it at all, because people define words differently so much now. So you could say sound doctrine, well, that doesn't, that could mean so many different things, depending on who's reading it. Like, what is sound doctrine? Um, has to have a right understanding of the gospel. Well, that will be articulated differently based on who you're talking to. So um, it's hard, I think, to communicate well what you mean by that when you're just listing markers. But I think that's a good note, though, that, I mean, we need to have right doctrine. We need to know who God is. Right? And we need to know how to have access to him. Those are like the two things. Who is God? And how do we come to him? Um, and then everything else flows from that. But any other comments on this? Active members like deacons and, and people like we have that work, in, work inside the church and all that. Did they have to have that back then? Or was it just a pastor? They had recognized um, clergy members and different offices. Uh, they would have more offices than what we would recognize today. Um, well, at least us as our, our church, right? The outside, I mean, not the outside, but the ones of these congregations who were participating. I see. So how was just the worship service conducted? Well, the laity, so those who weren't um, clergy, those who weren't, didn't ha- hold an office within the church, um, really didn't do a lot. Um, they would come up to receive the bread for the Lord's Supper. Um, 
and that was mostly it. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, they wouldn't even receive the wine or the drink. They would only receive the bread um, because the, the wine, the drink for the Lord's Supper was only for the clergy. They could, they're the only ones to be able to have both. Um, but yeah, they didn't participate necessarily a whole lot. They're regular or tender. And many of them wouldn't even be able to understand uh, what was being communicated because it was spoken in Latin and many of them didn't even speak Latin. So you'd go to church, take the Eucharist, and that was the main reason to go to church. Um, so you could be right standing with God, right standing with the, with the Catholic Church, um, but not understand what was being communicated many times. Any other comments on this part? All right, so Calvin, we're going to quickly go through him. Uh, I don't have seven large paragraphs. It's just one tiny quote here. Uh, What are the markers of a church here in the Institutes of the Christian Religion? Uh, We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Uh, He says, excuse me, whatever we see or wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered um, administered according to God's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So again, uh, preaching, Lord's Supper, baptism, he identifies here. See, these, again, are getting to just the fundamentals. What are the very core things you need in order to be identified as a church? Because if you're missing one of these, you're not the church. And so maybe that's kind of getting point to... Uh, what Jason asked earlier, um, they don't want to say add in at this point and say what also a church should have um, because they're just trying to identify what it, you need to have in order to actually even be a church. Um, they would say, as long as they have these three main things and probably discipline and leadership as well, you're at least existing as a church, even if you should be doing more things like missions. So, All right, so a question for you guys. Could other Christian gatherings, such as um, a Christian conference, for example, a chapel at a Christian school, etc., et like any type of gathering of Christians that's not a local church, could that be considered a church? Why or why not? Um, because, and some, I went to Moody Bible Institute for my undergrad. We would have chapel regularly. The preaching of God's word happened there. It was a group of Christians that hopefully most of them had some doctrine. Um, why or why not? Should that be considered a church? And not according to Luther, because he probably didn't baptize and... Hmm. To do the sacraments. Exactly. And, yeah, not proper leadership. Um, but I would point to what Lonnie pointed to right away. They don't do the sacraments. So, therefore, it's not a local church. So, you should, we should ask them the question uh, in a reverse way. Should those places, a Bible conference, chapels at Christian schools, administer, administer baptism and the Lord's Supper? church all right we'll say they're not trying to be a church but well we'll do these things should they do these things should they not do these things 
I'm seeing no's. Anyone want to say yes? All right, well, I'll agree with you. (laughs) So these things are given to the church. These sacraments are given to the church specifically. So I would say it's probably inappropriate to take the Lord's Supper um, at a Christian conference or to um, do baptisms at a youth camp outside of the local church. Because those things are for markers of the church, right? All right, any questions on that? Like practicing the sacraments outside of the church is probably extremely confusing for those participating. Mm -hmm. So like if somebody is baptized or receives the Lord's Supper, they, they don't feel the need to go and find a church, you know? And so it's so temporary and there's no accountability in it and just doesn't seem, it seems confusing. Yeah. Yeah, who are the recognized leaders, right? And how am I going to be held accountable then to when I am actively sinning and no one's pointing it out? <laughs> but, and, and note that the church isn't the building. So, like, you go take the you someplace and you get you do baptism there. That's still the church. Even though you're not in this building, yeah. you're doing it as a part. A deacon giving uh, communion to a homebound person is still doing it as a part of the church, even though he is not the pastor or the or in the building. He is doing it on behalf of and with the authority of the church. Sure. And we're going to actually get to some of those points that you just mentioned in the very next person we're going to look at um, of identifying then what is the church? It's not the building, right? So well, then what is it? And so uh, Thomas Cramner, you could see here, uh, he was in England. So we're um, going to the island there, England, during this time of the Reformation. Um, if you think of the names like William Tyndale, this was also during his time. Um, John Knox, uh, those are all individuals in that part of the world during this time of the Reformation. Uh, Thomas, he wrote the Book of Common Prayer, if you've heard of that. he's also wrote um, what's known as the, originally known as the 42 Articles um, of Faith, during this time, but then it was reduced, I believe, to 39 articles um, later. But uh, Cramner wrote in the 42 Articles of Faith when he's commenting on what a church is, and he's actually building off of what William Tyndale had said earlier when he's uh, defining the word, or he's translating the word ecclesia, what we say, translate as church. He's um, translates that as congregation. And that actually brings up a big discussion. Why would you translate that as congregation and not just church? Well, Cramner says um, that a church visible or the local church is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached, the sacraments are duly administered according to 
Christ's ordinance. So he, again, identifies preaching of God's word and the sacraments there. But he says it's a congregation of faithful men, and yes, we could say women as well, obviously. Um, and like I said, there was a big discussion. Well, why would they use the word congregation and not just church itself? And I think the answer to that is because they want to identify that the church isn't just the clergy. Um, it's the congregation. It's it's the people. It's the people who are assembled together for worship, right? Um, so now this kind of gets into a little bit of what Lonnie was um, discussing. And so I want us to look at these questions, and let's talk a bit about it. Why is it important to understand the church as a congregation? Um, or you could think of an assembly of people. What implications does this have for how we recognize what a local church is today? All right, so now, talk. What do you guys think? Implies attendance, so regular attendance. Okay. And members, which implies a known set group. Okay, that's good. Right? Um, So first, congregation, it's putting the emphasis more on the group of people. Um, And then what group of people? The assembled group of people is the church. So it's right to recognize the church is not the building, but the church is the assembled people in the building. If the people want to assemble somewhere else, that's where the church is. That's where First Baptist Church is. (coughs) So with that understanding... Where, what is the church? The church doesn't find its identity in the building. The church doesn't find its identity by just its leaders. It's the congregation. It's the people of, that are in the congregation. So that's what makes us distinct from any other local churches in this area. Hopefully we're doing the same thing, right? Because hopefully we're preaching Hopefully they're preaching. Hopefully we're doing that, the sacraments. Hopefully they're doing the sacraments, doing church discipline, doing all these different markers. But the thing that distinguishes us, right, is the people who actually gather. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of time. Uh, this is something that I thought have been thinking a lot more through ever since specifically COVID um, when we were not able to gather the way that we had been prior. Um, and so then, where is the identity of the church when it's when the people aren't gathered? Um, again, what is the church? The church is the congregation that gathers. I think many of us recognize that the church is the people, but sometimes we forget to add the second part to it. It's not just the people, but it's the gathered people. Um, there's a Nine Marks guy I like to read. His name is Jonathan Lehman, um, who writes a lot on the church. And um, he was very helpful, at least for me as an individual, as I was thinking through these things during COVID. Um, and I would use this line of um, argument to explain that, yes, it's helpful when um, you're not able to leave home um, 
due to sickness, right? Due to traveling and special circumstances. Those are the exceptions. It's helpful to not leave home and be able to still join church online. Those are the exceptions, right? But if we're holding to what an actual church is, it's the people who gather, right? It's it's the gathered congregation. And so, and there's a lot of implications we could go with this. Um, I don't know if, we don't have a whole lot of time. So we only have five minutes left and we have this next section on the Lord's Supper. So let's move on. Uh, Is there quickly any questions or comments at least on what we just talked about or what I just talked about? I I would say that I've been like in fits and starts kind of either screwing this up or learning this for a lot of my career Um, because military chapel, which is up until this year, my place of duty on a Sunday morning, um, is a place where people are gathered under the gospel teaching and sacraments are performed. Mm. But it ain't quite there. It's like if we got five, it's like four and a half, right? Because there really isn't any... um, the leadership, while you have folks who are ordained, um, they could kind of come from all over. You could or could not be even serving with like-minded brothers mm-hmm. and or sisters. Um, and um, there isn't any anything like a membership to mark out who gathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if we do like a baptism or a communion, um, and I do it like I did it. I did communion, uh, like, in Iraq a couple weeks ago. Um, And um, uh, it still is a little bit of a, like, kind of like a religious commodity, you know. So uh, it's not neat and tidy. It it seems like it when you're kind of just in a church. What's nice is this. It's nice to just have a church. You're like, ah, that makes sense. Um, But... Yeah, I've made every mistake that we've talked about so far. <laughs> so, we all yeah. have. <laughs> well, I mean, those are um, important things to think through, right? And that's a whole other category that I haven't worked through myself and thinking through as it relates to the military. Um, but yeah, those are good comments. But COVID, we couldn't come to church, but we were online observing and participating. Wouldn't that still be considered a gathering, even though we're not together? We are together in mind and mm-hmm. activity and caring yeah. and all that. Depends who you ask. <laughs> People have given different answers to that. We were gathered, but there is that. I think we. You say it's you pointed out. It's the exception. Yeah. You know so. We do what we can. A church in in China is not gathering in a building, too. So Mm. God's not saying, hey, you're in COVID and you did it online. He's thinking, yes, you did it online. Mm. God's praising and and, and is done. It's when, but we also recognize there's a value of the in-person meeting with people that we pass on to other believers that you can only get through physically being there but you know there's always going to be something that's going to be you're going to be in iraq or someplace like that or somebody's going to be there that that's 
that makes the exceptions, and we are not so strict that we're going to say those exceptions yeah. don't exist, you know. But in a perfect world, we would say the gathering in person, there's a lot of benefit to that yeah. for everyone involved. If it's not me, it could be others that I could influence. Yeah. So the exception doesn't make the rule, right? That's what we need to recognize. And so I think you're right, Lonnie. Um, so let's let's move on quickly. Uh, we're just going to talk about three Protestant positions that came out during the Reformation in the last couple minutes here on the Lord's Supper. Three different understandings of the Lord's Supper. So the uh, Catholic position uh, believed that the elements, right, the bread and the wine, actually turned into the blood and body of Christ. Uh, transubstantiation. turned into these elements. So Martin Luther uh, had a different position than that, but it was very close. Uh, If you've heard the term consubstantiation, that's normally attributed to Luther. And what that ultimately means is he believed the elements did turn into the body and blood of Christ, um, but only, in a way, partly or... Um, the essence of the body and blood of Christ joined the elements together with the elements of the blood and the bread, or the wine and the bread, and they kind of together um, became the elements you took. Um, so, yes, the bread looked like bread, tasted like bread, and so therefore was bread, but was actually the body of Christ in in a way. And so that was the, that uh, was Luther's position, right? So consubstantiation, the elements did turn into the body and blood of Christ. And Luther was very adamant on the fact that he, it says, Christ says, this is my body, right? So this is my blood. And he thought if we said that they were not, we were calling Christ a liar. And so that's what he thought. Uh, Aldrich Zwingli, we talked about him two weeks ago. Uh, maybe last week, I'm not sure if, um, Jason brought him up last week. But he is in line with a lot of the Baptist tradition, at least on this position, not with baptism, but on the Lord's Supper. He had the memorial view um, that the uh, elements, the bread and the wine or the juice, right, um, are simply uh, symbols for us to use to remember. Um, we identify the spiritual reality that baptism points to, which is our regeneration. What is the spiritual reality that the Lord's Supper points to? Remembrance of what? Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice, specifically what we would call the substitutionary atonement, right? Christ's atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. Yes. So, uh, Luther... The consubstantiation view, Zwingli, the memorial view, John Calvin, kind of a combination between the two. You have the spiritual presence of Christ in the elements. He says there is a real communion that's happening between you and Christ as you partake in the Lord's Supper. It's not just bare symbols. It's not just a a bare remembrance, but there's actually a real supernatural communion you're having with Christ as you partake in the elements. So he would identify the symbol 
with the spiritual reality and that there is a true spiritual connection between the two. Um, and so we're able to commune with God in a special way with us. So there's a real spiritual presence as you partake in the Lord's Supper. So those are the three um, positions then broadly that you could really identify still today in the Protestant position. And then obviously there's four positions then if you count the Catholic, the Roman Catholic position on that. All right, well, is there any questions? We went through the last part very quickly. On anything that we talked about. Um, with the Lord, or with um, thinking about who is the church, it's the people, it's the gathered people specifically. Some of the implications you could think through, and maybe we could talk about it later if you want, is is it best to do multiple services regularly, or is it best to have multi site churches? Um, those are just some implications of our discussion. And so you can think through that on your own, but let me close out in prayer. Lord, we love you, and we um, praise you again for who you are, Lord. We thank you that you are our Lord and that you have given us your spirit. Lord, you have regenerated us through um, the work that your son has done on the cross, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are our Lord and you are our God. Lord, I pray that we regularly look to you, Lord, fall more, with love, fall more in love with you every single day, Lord, uh, that we may be transformed into the image of your Son. We pray these things in your name. Amen.